All right, so tonight we are going to be in the book of Hosea. So you can, uh, if I were you, I would open your Bible there, and that will be fine. And then you also have the verses, most of the verses that we'll mention. I may go a couple of different places, um, at least I plan to, uh, that are not in the verse packet, but um, you, you have that there. Uh, I want you to see on the, the very back, the fifth page, that I've added uh, Hosea to the, the, the timeline here, and I just sort of extended him through the end um, of the, the uh, he's, a, he's a prophet to the north, but at some point he, he seems to live in the south, even as he prophesies to the northern kingdom, and he, his prophecy, his tenure as prophet, is referenced <coughs> also by the Judean kings, and so he extends all the way through Hezekiah. So I, I put him there, but I put him on the left side so that you can see he was primarily a prophet directed at the northern kingdom. And so as we go through the book of Hosea, um, the main goal really as we talk about all of these prophets and things like this and kind of put them in their, their timeline is that as you hopefully, as you think about Jewish history, just the history of Israel, and you place these prophets in the time that they go, that it, it helps to make sense a little bit of what they're saying. So as we'll come to find out, Hosea is going to be prophesying at the very tail end of Israel's history. And so because they're kind of at the tail end, you kind of know where Israel's headed. You know where they've, they've been and, and what they've been guilty of along the way. And so it's, it makes a little bit more sense, gives Hosea's prophecy a little bit more gravity. And also... Every time a prophet prophesies, you, you don't just get the, you're going to die, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to judge you. You don't just get that part. You do get that a lot, but you don't just get that. You get the back end of it, but it won't be forever. And so that means even more when we're looking at Hosea going to the nation of Israel because you know doom and gloom has been told to them for some time, and you know what they're guilty of, and they've been doing it for a long time. But there's also this back-end promise at the end of Hosea, several sprinkled really throughout Hosea, that it's not always going to be this way. There are going to be some significant changes on the horizon. And so as much doom and gloom as there is in Hosea, there's also sprinkled throughout these seeds of, of hope that we're going to kind of key on to. And so I want to just lay out the book of Hosea, and you can remember it. The other part of this is, I know, I know you don't always remember, I don't always remember everything that I say, and you don't always remember everything I say either, I, I, I know that. But, but part of it is, we have it on recording, we have notes that are downloadable online, and all of those kinds of things. So if you're ever even just reading through one of the books of the Old Testament, you can kind of look on there as a resource to, to what we've already said about it. So that can help. Um, all right. So let's just, as a point of review, let's look at just briefly what we talked about last week. Remember, Ahaz, everybody's scared about Assyria out on the, out on the horizon. And Ahaz, who is the, the king of the southern kingdom of Ju Judah, which we're not going to spend much time talking about tonight. Ahaz, who's the king of the south, is looking over toward the east, and he sees a threat in the north, too. That the king of the north uh, at the time, Pekka, and then Rezin, who's the king of Damascus, they're both threatening him. And he's really nervous that they're going to kill him if he doesn't abide by their agreement. But he's been told by Isaiah the prophet, do not agree with them under any circumstance. Don't go into a cohort with them to try to defend yourself against Assyria. The Lord's going to take care of it. So Ahaz listens to the prophet-ish, and then he turns to Assyria, and he makes a sweet deal with them where he just loots the temple and just gives them everything he's got to kind of pay them off, which wasn't at all necessary, but he did it anyway, and, um, and it cost him a high price. Not only did he have to pay from the temple, and he sold everything in the temple practically to give it to them, but he also then has to take on Assyria's gods. He has to do a lot of, the, a lot of other things. There's a lot of other compromises, you know, that sort of the fine print, right? You know, there's the, the, the legal commercial, the medical commercial, where you're like, yeah, this drug sounds amazing, and then causes headaches and dizziness and fainting and suicide sometimes. And you're like, well, wait a minute. That's, that's more than what you bargained for, right? And Ahaz has taken the drug and, of Assyria, and he's now having to pay the, the side effects. So um, Hosea, Hosea, not the prophet Hosea, Hosea, the prophet of the north, 
is when he comes onto the scene in 732, he's really limited. Remember 732, when does Assyria come in? 722, that was not super confident, but it's okay. Um, so 722, Assyria is going to come in and, and kill everybody. So Hosea takes over the throne in 732, so about a 10-year uh, gap there. When he comes onto the scene, Damascus has already been destroyed. Um, Tiglath-Pileser uh, has turned his attention now to Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the north, Israel. Kingdom of Israel, Samaria. Sometimes it's even called Samaria. So Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria at the time, has turned his attention to the north, and he's decided, I'm coming back there to take care of them. And so, of course, Hosea kind of resorts to the same thing Ahaz did, was sort of just pay them a bunch of money and see if that'll make them go away. And it actually draws their attention because he starts paying the money, and then one day he just stops. And they're like doing accounting, and they kind of go, wait a minute, he stopped paying. And so then they come in, and it gives them cause to invade. Three-year battle. And what happens? But then in the year 722, um, uh, Assyria finally topples Samaria, brings it to its knees, takes, all, takes its captives, or at least a lot of them, the prominent ones of society and things like that, and deports them off to the Assyrian Empire. And then they take captives from Babylon and various other cities that they've captured, and they import them into Samaria. So you get uh, the export of the actual Israelites, the actual Jews, and you get the import of Babylonians, who then, no doubt, intermarry with people that are still there in the land and who also kind of bring in their own religion. And then they have to be, they have to be educated by a priest that they send back well, go tell them, go give them a Sunday school class. So he sends them back to Israel, and they educate the Babylonians there about this is what we actually believe in this land so you don't get attacked by lions, because uh, they did. And, and so, what's that? Yeah, so the Assyrians had conquered Babylon, and so they imported a lot of Babylonians and other cities around there back into the northern kingdom. And so uh, what then happens was that those people just, well, just lived there for pretty much ever. And so then in Jesus' day, these become the Samaritans who have Babylonian ancestry and maybe a little Jew sprinkled in every, every once in a while. And so now you know this is why the disciples kind of want to walk around the town uh, or the, the area of Samaria and go straight to the south because, well, they're not really Jews. That's also why when you encounter the Samaritan woman at the well, um, she is, has a very strange religion. They worship on Mount Gerizim. They don't worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They have a strange practice of the way that they believe. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible and so on and so forth. They don't believe any of the prophets. It's because they're native Babylonians. They worship other gods, and, and they've just been in a Sunday school class for a really long time, basically, is all, all that is. Um, and so that brings us now to Hosea, the prophet that God, uh, he's probably lived in the south, but, but is appointed to the kingdom of the north. And uh, before Siri goes off on my watch, let me turn that off. Um, so Hosea <coughs> has been referred to frequently as the deathbed prophet of Israel because he's kind of the last little one to come in and give a word to the, the northern kingdom that, listen, um, you're going to die. And he kind of is the one that, that sees them into sleep. He's the hospice prophet, all right? You just kind of remember that. The first three letters of Hosea kind of clue you in. He's hospice, all right? He's brought in at the very end to sort of put, uh, put them out of their misery, as it were. And so um, he comes in, and, and the vast majority of his tenure uh, is during the reigns. He's referenced as the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. That's in the south. And he starts his ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, which is somewhere around 753 or so. And he continues all the way through to the end uh, until Israel is finally put under and taken off to Assyria. Now, you'll remember that Hosea is a very strange book. You remember why? Why is it really strange? Yeah, God tells him to marry a prostitute, which is bizarre, right? I think we can all agree that that's, at the very least, 
really weird that he asked him to marry a prostitute. Why does he ask him to do that? Yes. So Hosea is told to marry a prostitute to give a visual depiction of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. How do you like that? Does that seem weird? That seems a little strange, right? It, it, it seems a very strange thing. Now, he's also told uh, that, that Hosea is the one that also tells the nation of Israel that the Lord is going to visit upon Israel the blood of Jezreel. What, is that, what does that actually mean? Listen, listen to this. He says, uh, when the word of the Lord, this is 1-1, one, one, and for some reason I did not include the verses that follow, which is why it would be good to have your Bible open, but the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Ju- the kings of Judah, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, do you remember Jehu? You remember Jehu? You will, Because he comes to Jezreel, and he sees two kings there. He sees the king of the north and the king of the south. He betrays them. He gets them to come out to him. And then he kills them right there in front of everybody. You remember this? He's appointed as the commander of the army to go in and actually judge the nation of Israel by by doing this. And so he does it, and the Lord commends him for it. He says, you've done what's right. But do you notice something strange in the text here? It says, I'm going to punish the house of Jehu... For the blood of Jezreel. And it could mean that, or it could mean I'm going to do what was done in Jezreel to Jehu's house, which I think is the right way to understand it. I think what the Lord is saying there through Hosea, you can translate it a couple of different ways. The ESV has gone with one way, which I don't think makes much sense. The Lord said, good, Jehu, you did what I asked you to do. You're commended for it. He actually commends him for it. And now, in Hosea, he says he's judged for it, but it's probably because what he's saying is, what Jehu did in Jezreel, the amount of bloodshed that was there, I'm going to do to Israel on the house of Jehu, right? Does that make sense? So it's probably just a little bit different. But that happens in about 753. So we know that, uh, that, that Hosea is probably starting his tenure right there at Jeroboam 2 in about 753, right at the end of Je- Jeroboam 2's ministry. Or, uh, sorry, king, kingship. Okay, now, Yahweh commands uh, him to marry this adulterous woman uh, named Gomer, uh, which is also a shame. Um, uh, and the purpose was to, to uh, symbolize the adulterous character of Israel. And it's basically because Yahweh has entered into a covenant agreement, much like marriage, with the nation of Israel at Sinai. And when they go off into idolatrous relationships, it's essentially like being an adulterous woman. He relates it to being an adulterous woman. And so he gives Hosea this task. Now, this sounds really strange, but the more you read the Old Testament, and actually, I'm going to go to a spot in the New Testament and read this, and you might remember it. Um, This is actually kind of a familiar thing that the Lord does from time to time. You may remember a time in the book of Acts, and it's in chapter 21 of Acts, and it's in verse 10. Acts 21, 10, and you can keep your thumb in Hosea. We're going to come back to it. I did not include this in the verse because, it, honestly, the thought just occurred to me when I was standing up here that we should do this. Um, but in Acts 21, 10, remember Acts 21? We're getting close to the end of Acts. At the end of Acts, uh, Paul is headed off to his death. He's going to go back to Jerusalem, and he's going to be arrested there in Jerusalem, and they're going to haul him off to Rome eventually. 
and he's going he's gonna to get there and stand trial. And in, people are warning him. They're telling him, Paul, I think something bad's going to happen when you go back to Jerusalem. And Paul is getting wind of this, and he's like, he's, he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure something bad is going to happen. I am probably going to be arrested. Paul knows, in other words, that he's going back to his arrest. But while he's here, in, uh, it, as he's preparing for his journey to Jerusalem in 2110, while we were staying for many days, we being uh, uh, Paul and at least Luke, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. Agabus binds his own hands and feet with Paul's belt and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Is that not the most complicated way to tell somebody that they're going to be arrested? And, and that's, not, that's the tip of the iceberg of the number of times that a prophet demonstrates visually how, uh, what the Lord is saying to the nation. Say it again. Essentially, yeah, but he's talking, so you can't, you know, he should have said two words, sounds like, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's like a game of charades. Um, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Okay, well, as a prophet, you got to speak a little bit less if you just do a kind of a visual depiction. Ezekiel does some strange things, walking around without any clothes on and cooking poop over the fire and all kinds of things that are just what in the world is happening here? But essentially, this is kind of the mode of a prophet, is that sometimes they speak, and sometimes they depict, they show, and sometimes they do both. And so, um, in this case, Hosea is told by his life, his very life, to depict what the Lord is going to do. By the way, is anybody married in here? Anybody married? You are also depicting. You are, in a sense, prophets. And you are depicting the mystery of Christ and the church in your marriage. Right? You didn't think about it that way, did you? Oh, well. There you go. Uh, maybe, maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad news for you. I don't know. But the point is, you are depicting Christ in the church. And Paul tells you that. That this marriage that you're a part of is much like the ministry of the prophets, where you are depicting a mystery to the rest of the nations. Um, so, all right. <clears throat> so, uh, so he's, he's depicting this with his life. He's depicting the very character of Israel who walks up in it. And so people are watching Hosea and his wife just walk up, and he's like, I know who she is and what she does. And he's saying, yep, you sure do, and I do too, and the Lord told me to do it because he's wanting you to see a visual depiction of what it's like to be in a relationship with you and that's got to be extra convicting, I would imagine. Just like knowing that my marriage is a depiction of Christ in the church. Uh, <laughs> just, it's there for that extra measure of conviction, is what it's there for. Um, so, she becomes a prostitute, and she hires herself out, uh, just as Israel has, has done. Um, and she becomes, a, essentially, a wife of divorce. She's, she's illustrating how God is essentially going to mimic the pattern of divorce with Israel as they head into captivity. Remember, that's where we're headed to, 722. They're going to be hauled off by Assyria, and Hosea, as far back as Jeroboam II, is telling them that. He's going to act like he is divorcing you, and that's what it's going to feel like. You're going to be sent off into captivity. He says this in, in Hosea 2, uh, starting in verse 2, "'Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife.'" And I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Sounds ferocious. And it carries with it this bite uh, to it because obviously they're watching Hosea mimic this with his, his very life. The hope comes, though, at, toward the end of chapter 2. And, and I want you to think, if you can think of Hosea in really three big sections, the first three chapters 
are essentially kind of an introduction of what all the problem is. And then you've got two big sections where God goes into detail about all the things that Israel has done to him and how he's going to rectify this situation, which gets really, really fascinating. But this first, these first three chapters are kind of an introduction, and what you get at the end of this, or really towards the back half of this first introductory section, is this reminder that it's not always going to be this way. He, he's, he's, he has the option of divorce, God does. He has the option of execution, and he could divorce his wife, Israel, and send her off into captivity and never hear from her again. But he chooses not to because of his covenant commitment to her. Uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 23, uh, he says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the, of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, those are Hosea's kids, by the way, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Okay, so there's going to be a day when it's different. And there's this kind of whisper at the beginning. No, not really a whisper. It's told flat out. There's going to be a day where this is different. Now, in a New Testament context, as we read that, it becomes incumbent on us, and every single one of us are going to be asking this in our own study when we're reading in our house, well, when is that? Right? That's always the question when we read the prophets, and it becomes so difficult to answer a lot of times. When is this that he's talking about here? And the key is... First to remember, it's a day when he makes people that are currently worshiping idols to turn their hearts and worship him. So in other words, it's a day when he's going to give them a new heart. Remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh where they turn and worship him. That's first. But when is that day? Today. That's been for the last 2,000 years. He has brought Christ into atone for their sins, and he has given them of his spirit, removed their heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and he has turned the hearts of people to him. And he has made people who were not his people, his people. He has made people who did not call him God, call him God. So first, and primarily, it's been done. That's what Jesus partially means when he's on the cross and he says, it is finished. What he says, what he means when he says the Old Testament scriptures, they talk about me. Right there. But then we also have to hold open a category where it's not perfect. It's done, and it is in part, but it's also not perfect. So we live in what we call an already and not yet kingdom. The already is, well, this has already been fulfilled in Christ. It has been inaugurated in Christ. It's been started. These things are, have really already come about in Christ, and we are assured that they will continue to come about in Christ. But then we also have the promise that it will come to completion one day when he returns, and there will be never anymore a breath of adultery in our lungs, right? So it's a both-and, and we've got to hold those categories in tension with each other. Okay, 
But before any of that happens, so he tells them, here's the hope. And they all get kind of giddy, and they're like, all right, this isn't going to be as bad. The last prophet was really awful, and this one's not going to be so bad. He says, well, hold on just a second, because first, you're going to face exile and defeat. And it's only after that comes that you will be restored, listen to this, under the rule of who? A Davidic king. Who could that be? Well, that's going to be Jesus, right? So that's part of the reason we know that this has already seen its fulfillment, and it's already, the fulfillment is already inaugurated. It's just not consummated yet, but it's already been inaugurated because the Davidic rule of king, the king of, uh, under the line of David has already come about. That's what we've been studying in Matthew. It has already been initiated in Christ. And so look at what he says here in 3, 4 to 5. Um, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, I want you to connect these pieces real quick. Okay, think about this for just a second. They are sent where? East. All right? Just like Adam and Eve before them were sent out east of the garden, they are sent out east of the promised land. They're gone. What's the first thing that happens in Jesus' day? Somebody comes along and says something. Who is it? John the Baptist. And where is he standing? Where is he baptizing? In the Jordan River. And he is saying out, East, I am a voice calling out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Why is he calling out in the wilderness? Because they're in exile. They've been sent out east. They haven't come back. They're coming back. When? Under the rule of the Davidic king. So here is the person who is coming to trumpet the fact that the king is coming in, stands in the Jordan River, and he proclaims out to the wilderness, out east of the Jordan River, Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming to get you in exile, right? And welcome you back in. Okay, now, what is it that Israel is accused of? That's, so we, we close the first little section, and it's just sort of the introduction. We get into the next section. What is it that Israel is accused of? And this is the biggest section in the whole book, and it's chapters 4 to 11. Israel, first of all, is accused of not knowing God. Now, we can get a little dicey here, and I don't want to, but... <laughs> uh, when, when no is used in a personal relationship does not mean cognitive knowledge. It means intimate, even romantic knowledge. Adam knew his wife, right? So it means an intimate kind of personal relationship knowledge. So we read in Romans, those whom he foreknew. People go, well, that means he had cognitive knowledge. That's not what it means. It means people that he knew intimately beforehand. That's what that means. And so it can get a little dicey when we talk about things like that. People get uncomfortable with that. They don't need to because it's the Bible. Um, What's that? Say again. Yes, yes, Jer- Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's a, it's a foreknowledge, same kind of knowledge. Um, all right, so he, they're accused of not knowing God. You can see that in chapter 4. He says, uh, let's see, it's in verse, maybe verse 1? Yeah, what, uh, what, what verse are you reading? You see? 4 1. Yeah, hear hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. In other words, hey, their Bible trivia knowledge was great. They could beat you in a sword drill. They didn't know God. They understood things about Him, but they didn't know Him. And when this translates over to the New Testament, how do you know someone knows God? Not just knows Him, but knows Him. How do you know someone knows Him? They 
begin to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the fruit that the Spirit produces. How do you know that the Spirit, is, the Spirit has come in, changed their heart, removed the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh? How do you know that? Because they begin to emulate the fruit that the Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All right. They have no knowledge. But what do they do? They continue to go to the high places. They know Baal. They know the gods. They continue to serve them. They go to the high places and worship, him, worship uh, uh, Baal there, yet all the while claiming to be the people of God. How can you do that? Well, the same way we can claim to know the Lord here, come here together in claiming to be part of God's covenant children and be gossips and backbiters, be people that fight against one another, sometimes people that despise one another. There's nothing more palpable in a church than that. Nothing. And nothing that screams, these are not my people, like that. I heard somebody, pastor, one time say, and, I, and he, he'd been a pastor for 40 years, and I in just my limited experience, I think he's right, that a church can survive a pastor falling. You know what I mean, falling? But gossip will tear a church to the bones. That's true. Because when that happens, when there's a fracture inside the church body, and there are people that just despise one another, just don't like one another. Gossip, slander, things like that. It screams, these are not my people. Because when they are his people, they produce the fruit of the Spirit. They grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All right, they go to the high places, they worship there. Now, so pervasive and deep-rooted had their defection from the Lord become that the prophet came to understand the hopelessness of further intercession. He sees the futility in actually speaking to them. You see this in Hosea 5, 3-4. He says, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. In other words, their repentance cannot come from them. That's true in Old Testament day. That's true in New Testament day where we get this idea that you can just say, hey, come to the Lord, and then this person can just make this decision out of nowhere to come to the Lord is a farce. It's nowhere in the Bible. Repentance is a gift that God gives to His people. Exclusively a gift. And it's his to give. He says that here, that it's true of Israel. They cannot turn from their whoredom. They will be condemned by preaching. They will be condemned by prophecy. They won't turn. Only the Lord can break their heart and turn. Turn them from their sin. That's all that will happen. That's the only thing that can happen. So, this though, won't be the final word. God's going to have the last say in this. Israel will not get the last say in this. He depicts Israel as a son. He taught them to walk. He says this in, in chapter 11. So we're at the end of this big section right in the middle where he's laid out, here's all the charges that I've got against you. And he's going to get to some more in just a minute. But he says, here's all the charges that I have against you. But then chapter 11 comes along and he says, look, I know all that's true. But I raised you from when you were little. I taught you how to walk. I was the one that disciplined you. And so, I'm going to send you into the land of Assyria, but you're not going to be given up forever. Look at Hosea 11. Uh, I need to get to 11. 11.5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt 
but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Then it turns. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zebulim? How can I... My my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Well, he does, just not on them. He puts it on his son instead. It's not fair, but it's good. Hosea then indicts Israel, saying that, so it turns again. So we got 11, it ends, and it's like a note of hope, and they're like, okay, well, we can take that. Wait, I'm not finished. I've got some more to say. And so he turns in 12, and he says, actually, y'all have been idolaters since the beginning. This is the very beginning of this whole journey. You've been an idolater. And he starts to allude to a few of these things. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all these just uh, for sake of time, but he, 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 he says, you know, you've been an idolater from the beginning. He first talks about Jacob. Jacob was a liar from the beginning. He grabbed his brother's heel. He tried to seek the advantage. And what ended up actually blessing Jacob? Was it all of his betrayal and his wickedness and his turning and his twisting and his all his scheming and all those kinds of things? Did Jacob ever come to repentance and blessing on his own? No. The Lord had to give it to him. And that's what he says. You've... you've been a liar since the beginning, just like your father Jacob, the Lord had to bless him and he's going to have to bless you too, because that's the only way this is ever going to change. Not only that, but Israel was a group of complainers. The Lord appointed a shepherd over them, and all they did was complain about him. Year after year after year. So, what's going to happen? Well, they've reaped for their blood guilt from the beginning, that bitter complaining, bitter provocation. They provoke the Lord to anger, and so he's going to act. Paul picks up on this in the New Testament, too. Some of these things. Complaining, bitterness, tells you to let them go. They have no part in the body of Christ. Why? All these things trace back to Israel has been doing from the the get-go. Hosea condemns them and says, you're going to be condemned for it as well. As soon as the people in Israel start to complain as they're wandering through the desert because they don't have meat, he gives them quail until they vomit out their nostrils. You want quail? I'll give you quail. Here it is. Also, and he alludes to this at the very end, toward the very end of this kind of rant, if you want to call it that, um, that they complained. They wanted a king. We're tired of all this, Lord. We don't want you as king over us. We want a real king, and we want princes. And so he gave him Saul. And boy, did he lead them into idolatry. Just like that, he's going to lead them off into captivity. Now, in spite of all that, Hosea then comes to the end where he calls on them to turn to the Lord by repenting of their sin. And the sins that he calls out are not just the iniquities of worshiping idols, but it's also trusting in foreign nations and worshiping the work of their hands. Listen to this in 14, 1 to 3. It's too good not to read. He says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. This call to Israel, is, it's actually the same in the church today. The same call is here. What Hosea is calling them to is to the ministry of the Davidic king that's coming. And this is what I want you to say in that day. Take away 
All these things that I've worshipped, the work of my hands that I've worshipped. I'm an orphan. Save me. He's calling them to repent and to remember. When that Davidic king arrives, this is going to be the call. What does John the Baptist and Jesus say when they enter the scene in Matthew? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. So God even promises to, to love them freely, to turn his anger for them and from, from them and to bless them. Remember, he made this promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and that is chiefly in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's going to turn from his anger by burying it in the Son of God, and he's going to open the way to salvation. And all of this administration uh, is going to come under a future administration under the Davidic king that was mentioned in 3, 4 to 5, and we see this in Hosea 6, first in chapter 6, um, 1 to 3. Look at this. Here's my turn my pages. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. You can think about this as potentially fulfilled in the Davidic king, in Jesus. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn Jesus, that he may heal us. He has struck him down, that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Does that sound familiar? It does sound familiar. Um, that we may live before him. Let us know. What does that mean? Let us have intimate knowledge of him. How? Well, in the administration of this Davidic king who's going to raise from the dead on the third day, he's going to build us up that we may actually know him. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And he does in Christ. It's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And then in 13, verse 14, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? And I bet you've heard this before. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. When is that going to happen? Well, it's both. Jesus raises from the dead, and we can look to him and say, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? But then Paul tells us, because we are in his administration the administration of the Davidic king, that one day he will return and we too will rise from the dead. And when we rise from the dead, then death will be robbed of its victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? So it comes in the administration of this Davidic king. We can be a part of it now in an inaugurated sense. It's already begun. We're here. We can live in peace. Inside the church. That's what he means when he's talking about laying down the conflict, laying down the swords and the bows. In the church, there is no hostility. He has torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. There is no hostility. There shouldn't be in the church. If there is, it is sin. And you must repent of it. Any hostility whatsoever. I don't care if it's against somebody else. I don't care who it's against. It has to die. Period gone. You lay it down. Because you're under the administration of the Davidic king. And in the body of Christ, that's what it should look like. Then, it will be fulfilled in the future where you will never be tempted again to pick up the bow. It will come in fullness then. Questions? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Then. Then. Yeah. Um. Isaiah mentions turning their plowshares into pruning hooks. 
um, and uh, turning their swords into pruning hooks, sorry. Um, and their swords into plow, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There, I had it. Took me a second. Um, again, we're looking at the same thing here. Initial inauguration is right here in this room. So many people miss this. So many people look at these passages in, in, in the prophets and they go, end times, future dispensation of all this mess, and they just jumble up what the Bible's even showing you. And he's not talking about that at all. When, when you get to Paul in Ephesians, he says he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Do you realize what that means? I mean, Jews hated Gentiles. They wouldn't even talk to them. They wouldn't in, in, interact with them at all unless they absolutely had to. They despised Rome for being in, their, in the Holy Land. I mean, the fact that he can say, look, in the church, the dividing wall between a Jew and a Roman guard who both serve Christ, gone. He is the unity in the church. And if there is disunity... That means there is no Christ. Do you realize that? That's what you're saying. So when you, when you have bitterness towards anyone, when you have bitterness towards anyone, you're basically saying, Christ may not be in me at all. Now, put yourself in a church where people are either openly or secretly bitter towards one another. What do you think it says about that church? Maybe Jesus isn't there. It has to be put away. If it's not, if you, if you walk away and you're like, well, I don't, I'll just hold on to it because I don't really care. You're, you're basically telling everybody and you should be telling yourself. Christ isn't in me. Think about it. The, the bar for church in the New Testament really high. It's really high. Oh, I mean... There, there's, there's, in some sense, it's simple. The church is really simple. We come together as a body and we devote ourselves. They did in the first century. They, they say this about the apostles. They devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of the elders of the church. So that's, that's the biggest part of it. Teaching and preaching of the elders of the church. Okay? That's the biggest part of it. Second, they then turn to the community that they're in and begin serving the poor. That's basically it. They serve one another, making sure there is no one poor amongst them. He lost his job. He has no food. Well, we're all going to come together. We're either going to give him food or we're going to give him money. One of the two. Or maybe both. Devote ourselves to teaching and preaching. We're going to turn to the people that are around us that are hurting and whatever, and we're going to give them food and money. And then whatever is left over, we're going to take care of the people in our community to the best of our ability. That's it. We have, in churches across America, we have 150,000 programs, and we've got a billion staff members that are trying to juggle all these programs. Why? It's nowhere in Scripture at all. It's designed to make you comfortable. It's designed to appeal to you. And in the process, it turns you against your neighbor. Because I don't like the way that program's run. I don't like how that's going on. That minister's not worth a dime. You know that? That's all it does. It turns us into bottom feeders. It's awful. It has to die. We have to come back to a church that at its bones is really simple. Devote ourselves to the study of the word and how that is lived out in our body 
and to how that is lived out in our community. That's it. You don't have time to fight. That kind of community is compelling to a world that's dying. You know that? The kind of community that is at each other's throats or where that guy hates that guy is not compelling to anybody that walks in and you can sense it from a mile away. It's not compelling to anybody. So, anybody that's in this room has to simply decide that's not where we're going to be. I'm, I'm certainly not going to be a part of it. If somebody else is, and somebody else wants to gossip and slander and backbite and do all those kinds of things, well, then let condemnation be raked upon their own heads. I'll tell them they shouldn't do that, that it's sin, but I'm not going to be a part of it. So just decide you're not going to be. And form a kind of community inside this very room that is different than that. And it will be. And the people that are bent on backbiting and slandering, if there are any, they'll be driven away because they won't have a space for it to work out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your, your word as it ministers to me um, and to the people of our, our church. I pray that you would use it in a powerful way. I, I know there's so much that I fail at every single day. And there's no way as I see power of your word, that there's any way that I could possibly live up to it. I, more than anyone, need Christ's atoning work. We all do. We confess that we need it. Our animosity, our, our fear, our Everything that we partake in is just evidence. It's just evidence heaping upon evidence of the fact that we, yes, we need Christ. We want to be a kind of community that is compelling to the rest of the world. Would you make us that? In Jesus' name.